0: me, I'm going to preach on giving tonight, and I'm really going to stick it to you. Now, that's, uh, that's the subject of our text. The title that I've given to this passage of Scripture is called Giving Back, and we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. It says, "...the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart you shall take my offering." And this is the offering which you shall make of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair, and rams' skins dyed red, and badgers' skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary." that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee. After the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Let's pray. Lord, it is our sincere desire to get to know you better through your word. We understand that every verse has revealed some truth about you or from you. Father, as we journey with the children of Israel through this book of Exodus, Lord, we want to see you more clearly as you revealed yourself to them. And as we begin this section on the tabernacle, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you in every part of it and understand that you have made your dwelling with us, not in a tent of cloth but in a tent of flesh, and that you indwell every believer's heart. Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to understand convictional giving and that we would not be stingy, but that we would be generous with the God who has given us everything. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 24, God calls Moses up on the mountain alone, if you remember where we left off and God wants to commune with Moses for 40 days. God has more revelation that he wants to give to Moses that Moses is to pass on to the people. God is going to give him a hard copy of the 10 commandments written in stone by the finger of God and God has more information to give to him. Chapters 25 through 31 record God instructing Moses about the tabernacle that he wants the Israelites to construct for him. And so Moses gets called up on the mountain. He's there for 40 days. And the content that God covers for those next six chapters is all about the tabernacle. That time of communion is ended when the children of Israel... Uh, get into a rebellious spell, make a false idol. Moses has to come off of the mountain and deal with that. But the content we're going to be covering is God revealing to Moses his instructions for the tabernacle. Just to refresh your memory, the tabernacle is a temporary temple. It is it, it is meant to be used for a temporary period of time until they get into the land and are able to construct the permanent one. It is a portable sanctuary. And so at this stage in the journey of the children of Israel they're all living in tents they haven't made it to the promised land where they will be dwelling in homes that are made out of stone and wood and other permanent materials right now they are all camping out and so the tabernacle is going to be a portable sanctuary for worship it's going to be for worship and it's also going to be a place of sacrifice while the Jews journey to the promised land It's some interesting observations to make. God doesn't wait until they get into the promised land to then have them build a temple where he will dwell with them. He wants his people to know that he is with them in the wilderness as well as in the promised land. He is the deliverer that takes them out of bondage. And he doesn't leave them until he gets them safely home. And so he wants us to understand that his dwelling is with his people. This tabernacle is destined to be the centerpiece of the camp of the Hebrews. As you think about this group of people, we know a conservative estimate is that there's over 2 million people that is journeying from Egypt to Israel or to Canaan. Well, as you can imagine, that takes a pretty big field to camp in. It's going to be a large space that is needed. There's going to have to be some order. There's going to have to be some structure in which it's laid out. And with the tabernacle, all of a sudden this becomes the centerpiece and everything else is going to be orientated and structured around this tabernacle. As you think about the camp from here forward, once the tabernacle is built, the tabernacle is at the center. It will be the first thing that is packed up and moved and then it will be the first tent that is set up in the new location. Around the tabernacle are going to be camped the four branches of the Levitical tribe. And so you have the families of Gershon that are going to be on the west, and then you have the families of Kohath on the south, and then the families of Merari to the north, and the families of Aaron and Moses to the east. That's significant because although God is dwelling with his people he has not sent the Messiah yet the way has not been made open to him and so the people go through the priest to get to God priests or the liaisons. They are the advocates. They are the go-betweens who take the sacrifices and then offer the blood in the, temp- in the tabernacle to God. And so they surround the tabernacle. There's only one entrance into the court of the tabernacle and then into the tabernacle itself, and it's on the east side. And so Aaron becomes the first high priest. It will be his lineage that continue on the high priest. And it is the high priestly tribe that is camped to the east or at the door of the tabernacle and so that's the immediate vicinity around the tabernacle and then fanning outward from there the 12 tribes will be camped and so you have Issachar, Judah, and Zebulon camped to the east side you have the tribes of Reuben, Simeon and Gad camped to the south side you have the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh and Benjamin to the west side and then you had the tribes of Nathalie, Asher, and Dan to the north side. So every time they would pack up and move, this is how they would reset up the camp in this order. The tabernacle was at the center, and it was in a relative proximity to all of the people of Israel. And so those Levitical families were camped in the relative proximity. Each of those three tribes to each cardinal direction were camped in a relative proximity to the tabernacle because it is the place where God would be dwelling among them. One of my favorite book titles that I have down on my shelf uh, is a little small book written, written by Stephen Alford on the tabernacle, and the, the title is this, Camping with God. And I think it's such a beautiful, simplistic picture of what's going on here. They are literally camping with God. God is making his camp with them. He has his tent in the center. As a matter of fact, that is highlighted for us in the text in Exodus 25 He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This is significant. This is significant because God is present with him in a more permanent way than he has ever been before. So just think back, calculate back from Exodus 25 all the way back through the book of Genesis. Has God ever commanded any of his people to build him a tabernacle or a tent? Has God ever said that I will dwell with you and have a visible representation of my presence in your midst? No, this is a brand new development. And this is God saying, I am going to be present with you in a more permanent way than I've ever been before. And God wants his people to know that. And he wants his people to be reminded of that. And so he gives them the reminder of the testimony of this central tabernacle so that every day when they get up and they come out of their tents, they know that they can look towards the center of the camp and they will see that distinct tabernacle, that distinct tent that is unlike any other. As a matter of fact, this is highlighted a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 29 where God really emphasizes the fact that he is dwelling with them and his dwelling is going to be the tabernacle. Exodus 29 verse 42, This shall be a continual offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord where I will meet you to speak there unto you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. Verse 45, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. As we discussed from chapter 24, that was the the official sealing or certification, ratification of the covenant that God was making with his people. And so God makes that covenant. He issues the conditions of the covenant and the Ten Commandments and the subsequent laws. The people hear it. Moses writes down a record of it. He makes a blood sacrifice. He sprinkles it. He speaks the words to the people. They say, we will obey it. We agree to it. He will be our God. We will be his people. And he seals it and sprinkles them with the blood. This is an accompaniment to the covenant that God has made. God says, look, what you get when you make this covenant with me is you get me. You get my presence, not just my blessing not just a delegation of my power, not just my protection. You get me. And so he is wanting to make his dwelling with them. But before I get ahead of myself, I need to go back to the text, which is about God's plan to source the materials for this new tabernacle. While he alludes to the fact that the tabernacle is going to be the place of his sanctuary, the place that represents his dwelling with them, the text is actually about the materials that are going to be used, that are going to be needed for the construction and for the furnishing of this tabernacle. God's plan is this, to take up an offering from the people of Israel to supply all of the materials. Now, could God supply it supernaturally? Well, as I think back, he, he sent ten plagues and destroyed a kingdom. Uh, he parted the waters of the Red Sea. He made water come out of a rock. He makes manna rain down from heaven every single day. I'm pretty sure if he wanted to, he could have just deposited the materials. But that was not his plan not because he was relegated to only the resources the people of Israel had, but it actually reveals to us that God wants to include his people in his work. He wants to include people in his work. It's been that way from the very beginning. If you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when God creates Adam, he then assigns Adam the job of naming all the animals. Uh, To me, that is a significant, astounding uh, delegation that God gives to Adam because no doubt God could have thought of better names than Adam could. God created him. God knew all the genetic codes and all the families, and yet he includes first man in his work on the earth. And he's not changed his mind since then. Right? When God chose to save the population and preserve the population through one family, Noah, God didn't supernaturally create a boat that would sustain them. He didn't uh, direct him to a mountain that would stand above all the waters. He wanted Noah to be involved in the work. And so he allows Noah and his family to build that ark. The same is true and consistent here. God wants to build a tabernacle where he can dwell with his people, but his plan is to involve and include the people by allowing them to contribute to it. And not only does he want to include them, but he also wants them to invest in the work. He wants them to invest in the work. I I, uh, understand this from a parental aspect. Uh, As a dad, I understand that it is good for my kids to invest in some of the things that they get. Now, there's some stuff that they don't have to invest in. We buy food and we buy clothes and stuff like that. But when it comes to toys and now motorcycles and cars even... Dad's going to help, but dad's not going to pay it all and just give it to them because I know that when they have to invest in it, it has more meaning and more value to them. I don't know the mind of God, but I understand that I'm created in His image. And I think that possibly that is one of the motives in which God is using here when He includes His people and He has them invest in it. He knows that it is going to be more valuable, more meaningful to them if they have actually invested in the work. But you know, sometimes people object to giving. Sometimes people get really offended at the idea of being called upon to give an offering. I've heard people complain in my ministry about, you know, going to church and they shove the offering plate, right, in your face and expect you to to give an offering. And while that's not not the motive of of our church or any church that I've pastored, I can't speak for every church, there are some people who simply recoil at the at the at the suggestion that they should give some of their hard-earned money. And the reasoning goes like this. Uh, uh, I worked for my money. Nobody gave it to me. Why, why would I just give it to somebody else? Well, God knew that this would be an area of struggle for us. Right? It's not easy to give your money away. I, I don't like paying taxes. I, I don't like uh, spending money on things that are unnecessary. And so there is this natural aversion to the idea of simply just giving money away, especially if you calculate how many hours you have to work to earn it. And so God knows that about us. He knew that about the people of Israel. And he actually addressed this with the, the Jews in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He's giving them a warning about getting into the land and getting prosperous and, and forgetting about God and investing in his work. And he said this in Deuteronomy 8 verses 17 and 18. He says, if you say in your heart, my power... And the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. He says, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth. You see, we've got to take it back a degree. When we object to giving to God, we're only thinking about what we did to get the money. Well, that cost me blood, sweat, and tears. That cost me X amount of hours. That cost me this many dollars in the training that I got at college or institute or whatever it may be. But we've got to back up a degree and say, hold on a minute. Where did I get the power to do the work? Where did I get the natural intelligence to be able to run these programs or to process this information? Where did I get the opportunity to get this job or start this business? You see, there's a prima factor in back of all of that, and it is God who gives us the power and the ability and the opportunity to get the wealth. And again, yes, we work for it and we make an investment in it, but if we think that we are self-made men and women, we are absolutely delusional because without God, there would be no you or I. And so... God reminds them of that. The children of Israel could have argued that they worked for what they had to and and that they didn't want to give it away. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. They worked hard every single day. The Bible says that their work was with rigor and they were considered to be slaves. They weren't getting paid wages for what they were doing. As a matter of fact, they didn't get any compensation until they left uh, Egypt. They could have said, you know what? Uh, that's, that's not even fair compensation for the work that we've done. That's not fair compensation for the generations of slavery that we've spent in Egypt. That's not fair compensation for my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my great-grandparents who all died as slaves working for uh, the Egyptians. I mean, they could have very easily balked at the idea of God asking them to give their goods to his work. But do you remember that it was God that provided everything that they had? Again, I just point you back, Exodus 12, 35 and 36, the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver, jewels of gold, raiment, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. You know, it's pretty amazing. Even though they were slaves and they didn't have the opportunity to build wealth while they were in that nation, God made it so that when they left that the Egyptians gave them everything that they would need to source this tabernacle. You think that's an accident? You think that's a coincidence? Or do you think that's the providence of God? God knew that he was going to call on them to build his tabernacle. God wanted to include them. Well, how could he include them if they didn't have the materials that were going to be needed, right? They can't run down to Lowe's, Home Depot, or Menards. This has to be something that they have in their possession. And so God made sure that they had it in their possession when they left Egypt so that they have an opportunity to use it when called upon and so God asked the Hebrews to give back a portion to him and that's what it is when you and I think about giving to God we ought to always think giving back to God you see because it it didn't originate with us it originated with him and it comes to us and it comes through us and he lets us keep most of it right And he does ask for us to give a portion of it back to him so that he can accomplish his work on earth through the human instrumentality that he's designed. And so tonight, I just want to bring out three aspects of this offering from our text. Number one, the will of the offering. In verses 1 and 2, the will of the offering. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Well, you know, it's clear that it's God's will for them to give this offering, right? I've had a few discussions about whether the tithe is New Testament or not. Oh, you know, a tithe. That's in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. Well, you know, that's a conversation I beg to differ. I find it in the New Testament. Uh, but the point is this. You can't argue the fact that it was God's will for these people to give. God spoke to Moses and said, Moses, tell the people, take up an offering for me. Take up an offering for me. And so it's the will of God that they give. It's clearly the will of God that they give. But here's how good God is. God doesn't just simply will it and force his will upon them. He could have made it so. He could have made it a taxation, could he not? Do you know that's what they did in early America? When the Congregational Church, the branch off of the Anglican Church in England, left the oppressive uh, church and came here for uh, reform, that they started uh, state churches and that there was a tithe tax that people had to pay. And so you were required to pay a tax that went to the church. Well, you know, God could have done it that way. He could have made it a tax. Everybody has to give X amount. But he doesn't do that. You see, because it's not just the will of God, it is also that God wants it to be given by the will of the people. Notice the last statement there in verse 2. Of every man that giveth it willingly. You might want to circle that little word, willingly with his heart you shall take my offering willingly you see it is God's will for his people to give to build this tabernacle but it is also supposed to be the willingness of the people who give it that's how God wants his giving to be done that's what he says in in Second Corinthians chapter nine, that that God loves a cheerful giver. Let every man purpose in his heart what he will give, because God lives, loves a cheerful giver. Don't don't give grudgingly, and and don't give out of necessity. God wants us to give willingly. If you give back to God, he wants it not because you feel super obligated or, or guilted into it or, or in some strange way think that you are contributing to your salvation or your eternal security. No, he wants us to do it as an act of our own free will, that we are willing to give out of our possessions and out of our prosperity back to him. By the way, this was not a one-off by God. And sometimes we read something that happened one time in the Old Testament and we understand that it's simply a description, it's not a prescription for how it's going to happen every time. But then there are other things that happen in the Old Testament and they happen repeatedly again and it's establishing a pattern. Uh, this is the exact same program that was used when the temple was built. If you've got your Bible, hold your place in Exodus, and go with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. The entire chapter is about the fact that David is taking up an offering to get the money and the materials for the temple that his son Solomon will build. But if you just glance through this chapter... You will notice that there is a repeated word. you find it in verse 5. Who then is willing to consecrate his service unto the Lord? you find it in verse 6 that the rulers of the king's work offered willingly. And then we find it in verse 9. Then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. We find it again in verse 14. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. We find it again in verse 17. Uh, near the end of the verse, As for me and the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen the joy of thy people, which are present, who offer willingly unto thee. I'm telling you, it's a pattern with God. It is God's will that God's people give. And it is God's will that God's people invest in God's work on earth But God wants us to do it willingly. We ought to be willing givers when it comes to doing God's work. Number two, the worth of the offering. In verses three through seven, we have somewhat of a cataloged list of the types of things that are being taken up in the offering, right? He doesn't want mismatched sandals, he's not asking, right, uh, for people's old robes. Uh, no, he's very specific about what he's asking. There's a mission to accomplish. And he says in verse 3, This offering which you shall take of them shall be gold, silver, brass, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, and badger skins and shit and wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And so God asked for some very valuable commodities this is not just stuff that was tossed around and laid around or stuff that you could just find anywhere or pick up off the ground if you went for a leisurely walk in the wilderness these were the treasures that people kept in the hearts of their tents these were the things that they buried under their beds to keep them safe from marauders and from thieves these were the heirlooms that they would pass on to their children these these were their hopes and their futures as they are going out like pioneers and they're going to be settling in a new land and they have dreams of starting businesses and starting lives and starting farms and doing all of those things. These are valuables and I would say to you that they are just as valuable to them as they are valuable to us today. Gold is still valuable, silver is still valuable, brass has value these linens these cloths have value these precious stones have value and i would say this to you it is the value the cost that makes it an act of worship that's what makes it an act of worship so why would god do that to them i mean why wouldn't he find a more affordable way to build that tabernacle right that's what every church building program has went through. Why can't they just find a more affordable way to do it? Can't they build it with cheaper materials? Right? Couldn't God have done it a little? I mean, couldn't he have done it on the down low? I mean, did he have to have gold in that place and silver and brass? I mean, couldn't he have used other things? Why does he ask for the valuables? Oh, I think Jesus said something about that in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust is not corrupt where thieves do not break through and steal for where your treasure is there will your heart be also hey it's a heart test giving is checking the temperature of your heart it is checking the value that you place on god if there's people sitting back in the congregation of Israel saying, you ain't getting my gold, I, I'm not doing that. That's a telltale sign that they say, God is not worth as much to me as my gold is. God is not worth as much to me as my future security is. God is not worth as much to me as, uh, as my plans for this down the road. And so God asks them for an offering of worth, an offering of worth. Do you remember David expressed this in 2 Samuel chapter 24? David had sinned against God. He had numbered the people, and God says, Judgment coming, you you pick your poison. You can have a famine of so many years. You can be laid siege uh, for so many months by your enemies, or I can send one of my angels through. And take out a number of your people. And so David figured his best option was with the God who has mercy. And so the angel came through Israel and laid down thousands of people dead. And it was at the threshing floor of Ornan where the angel finally stopped. And David says, I want to buy this piece of property. I want to make an offering to God. And it's believed that it later becomes that future site of the temple that is built there the man who owns the property was he's kind of like the 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 last person we're waiting on to get saved right you've heard that theory that that when the last person who's supposed to get saved gets saved that's when the rapture happens and I've heard people describe that you know they kind of make it to heaven with the seat of their britches smoking like whew, that was close barely made it in Well, you know, that's how it was for this man and his sons. As they were threshing, the the angel was there to slay them, and it was right there at that point where he stopped. And so the man who owned the land said, King, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the land. I'll give you the implements. I'll give it all to you. And David says, No, I will not offer something to God that costs me nothing. Put a price on it and let me pay for it. That's the worth of the offering. It it is showing that God is of greater value to us than our stuff or than our bank account or our retirement fund. Yes, it costs us something to give. Sure, you could use that money for something else, whether it is uh, leisure, whether it is pleasure, whether it is investment, whatever it may be. There's no doubt you could use it for something. But when we decide to give it to God, we're saying, God, you're worth more than this, and I'm going to give it to you willingly. The third aspect of the offering is the work of the offering. We find it in verses 8 and 9. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you in the pattern of the tabernacle, in the pattern of all the instruments thereof. Even so shall you make it. The offering accomplished the work of building the tabernacle. That's what it did. What's this offering for? Well, it wasn't just so that there would be a big pile of jewels and linens and materials laid up in a heap offered to uh, God. It was so that the work could be done. God has a work that He is doing. He wants to build a tabernacle where He can dwell among His people. And so it is the offering of God's people that accomplishes the work of God on planet Earth. And again, this is one of those things that we see as being patternistic in Scripture because... If we look ahead, it was offerings that accomplished the work of the building of the temple in First Chronicles 29. As we just read, they gave gold and silver and stone and all the materials and the workmen that were needed to be done. But then we find that after some years, the temple went in disrepair as the people of Israel rebelled against God. And it was offerings from the people that accomplished the work of repairing the temple under King Josiah in Second Kings chapter 22. If you remember... Uh, they had let the the temple go in decline they had they had they had robbed it of some of its fine materials to pay off other kings that were a threat to them Uh, some of the boards were overlaid in gold they had pulled up and stripped out and so the temple was actually in disrepair and they needed to repair it what was their solution the solution was to take up offerings from the people to provide for the work. Well, God's not building a tabernacle or a temple today, but you know, he is building a church. Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, there's no doubt that Christians can get into an edifice complex where they're all about their building or their building and they take great pride in it and they pump the majority of their money into it. That's never what God intended. These are all supposed to be functional. We try to make them uh, relatively nice so that they reflect the seriousness that we have about God. We want to give them a a certain sanctified air about them so that it's different than other rooms that you would go into. But look, the, the goal here is not to have the nicest building in Atkins. The goal here is not to have the biggest building or the shiniest building or the best decorated building. This building is simply a tool that we use to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a gathering place where we can bring people in to share the gospel and preach the gospel with them. It's a place where we can make disciples by teaching God's word consistency, uh, consistently. It's a place where we can do outreach from and have a visible presence in our community. The church that Christ is building is not simply a building. It is the body of Christ that is doing the work of the Lord in the earth. And even though it's not simply a building, it still requires the generous giving of God's people to accomplish the work. How do we get missionaries to the field? Well, we have to fund them. Right? If they go there on their own and they're trying to work in a foreign land and pay all the taxes and pay for the housing and do all things, it leaves very little time for them to do the work of evangelizing and discipling. And so as God's people give, like you all have given to our North American missions, we're we're over $9,500 has come in so far, that is wonderful. I praise the Lord, and I thank you for your generosity. We give that because we understand that that we're trying to help the work of Christ in North America and that we are funding ministries, and we are funding ministers who can go out and do the work and spread the gospel. And so... It's my personal conviction that it's God's will that we give to the work, and I believe that it's worth every penny that we give. And I believe that, that giving does have to be a matter of personal conviction. Just as God called his people to give willingly from their heart, I think that every Christian ought to reach a convictional place where they say you know what nobody's got to coerce me to give nobody's got to convince me to give I'm going to give based on my own conviction that I believe that it is something that I ought to do and that it is something worth doing and so I would say this to you let's not be stingy with God after all He's the one who gave us the ability and the opportunity to get it in the first place. Like I said, it's not a message on the tithe. We're not taking up a special offering other than the missions offering that we take up uh, this time of year. But it's just a reminder to us that giving is part of the journey with Christ and that God has chosen this as a means to fund his work on planet Earth and that every penny that we give is worth it and I look forward to seeing the fruits of our giving one day when we get to heaven would you bow with me (laughs) dear Lord I do thank you so much for your word I thank you that you give us these examples of others who have given sacrificially and that you remind us Lord of the importance of giving we understand that not everybody can give the same thing but everybody can give And Lord, I am also reminded of the fact that you once stood by an offering box in Jerusalem and you observed that one widow woman who cast in two mites in your economy had given more than all the rich men who had tossed in their bags of coins. Oh Lord, I'm so thankful that you see the whole picture that you know the true cost of every offering that is given, and that not one penny will go unnoticed or unrewarded. Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to be convictional givers, that we would be willing to give to your work, knowing that it is how you accomplish it on the earth. Father, I thank you for the giving of this church, and I pray and ask, Lord, that it would never be an issue for us that we would be faithful till Jesus comes back. And I pray that in his name. Amen.